Let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer and then we will begin our time in the Word this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for your Word, that you have blessed us with it, that we have it as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we have it as instruction for our lives, not for the sake merely of ourselves, but to the praise of your goodness and glory. Thank you. That our lives might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that to the praise of his glory. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless our time in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as we look at the second part of this message with regard to direction for the deception of the last days. That is, direction for God's people in the midst of the deception that will prevail in the last days. That's what we are examining. And I want to call your attention once again to the text before us this morning, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and start with me in verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, who brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We'll stop there this morning. As we mentioned last week, we are looking at a text of Scripture that Paul is writing in a sense prophetically, and he's referring to the events of the last days, in particular those last days that are immediately prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very specifically, he's talking about the period of the Great Tribulation and the immense deception that will be taking place during that time. And at the same time, we recognize that there are birth pains that transpire even before that, and deception becomes a prevalent characteristic of the world in the last days. And what we have seen in this is that this deception as it comes on is a deception of great power. 
we acknowledged last week from the text that this particular person, the Antichrist who is in view, who is going to be instrumental in deceiving, is actually and will be ultimately acting under the authority or the energies of Satan. And you can see that there in verse 9. That is the one, that is the Antichrist that he is referring to, whose coming is in accord with the activity, that is the influence of Satan, the energy of the devil himself. And notice as the text goes on, with all power and signs and false wonders. Satan has the ability to act upon this earth to bring about meteorological events. We saw that in Job chapter 1 last week. He's able to call down fire from heaven. He's able to call winds across the terrain. He is also able, according to Job 1, to muster armies together. And then whenever we saw Job 2, we saw that he is able to inflict the body with disease, pain, sores, and agony. The Bible refers to Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 as the God of this world. And it's not by a, a mere capricious act that he's referred to as the God of this world. He is by no means God, but there the sense is that he has authority in this realm. He has power to act in the realm of the world and in the realm of the lost. He has authority and power to take the lost captive and to do with them as he will. And one of his means of taking them captive is that of deception. And we should be aware of that fully because Jesus himself said that Satan is the father of lies in John 8:44. And so whenever we see Satan acting deceptively, we know that he is employing his natural nature and technique. And he's mastered it for thousands of years. And here he says that, or the text says that he will come with power and signs and false wonders. He will come with power in the sense that it will be, appear to be supernatural powers, and it will be supernatural power. It will be more than what humanity can conjure up. It will be the power of the devil himself working through the Antichrist. Furthermore, he will come with signs. This word signs is translated miracles in John chapter 3, verse 2. And the word has a sense there of appealing to one's understanding in the sense that they see it and they recognize, hey, this must be something supernatural here. They actually employ the mind in it. And then it says with false wonders, and the wonders there appeals to the imagination. The people are in a, and will be in a sense of awe as they behold it. Now, these three words, power, signs, and wonders, not false wonders, but power, signs, and wonders, were actually applied to the apostles and to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in those senses, in that application, according to the New Testament, and as we saw in John chap or Acts chapter 14, 
God gave Christ and he gave the apostles the ability to perform these signs and wonders as a means of demonstrating that they were delivering to the people the very word of God. And we went over that specifically last week. So we're not going to go into the specific verses this week. But these same words now are applied in this context to the Antichrist. And as we went last week and looked at Revelation chapter 13, where Revelation 13 describes the actual fulfillment of what Paul is prophesying here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we saw that there will be another individual that will come on the scene, and that individual is the false prophet. And he will act in all the authority of the previous beast, that is, the Antichrist. And this false prophet will have the ability, the same as the Antichrist does, to perform these signs and wonders to deceive the people and cause them, according to Revelation 13, to worship the beast. And the beast is the Antichrist. The point in all of that is to demonstrate the power of the deception in the last days. Now, one of the characteristics of this deception, and you'll see it there in verse 10, and I'm going to ask you to go there with me again, if you will, and notice this. And with all the deception of wickedness, one of the characteristics of the deception that takes place in the last days and it's referred to here as deception of wickedness. And it's not just telling us and communicating to us that the deception is wicked. That is true. But the idea of it is much more than that. The deception that will take place in the last days will be a deception that actually appeals to the flesh, to the carnality of the individuals being deceived. Jump down in the text with me for just a moment to verse 12. Here he is those who are deceived, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth. But notice this. They took pleasure in wickedness. They took pleasure in wickedness. So the deception of wickedness that is mentioned is a deception that will appeal to the pursuit of the satisfaction or the pleasure experiences of the flesh. That's very important for us. Because oftentimes in our world today, whenever we speak of wickedness, we want to link with wickedness the idea of that which is debauchery. We, we want to say, oh yeah, that's wicked. That person worshiping the devil. That person... Um, committing atrocious sins. But the Bible doesn't merely limit wickedness to that extent. It goes beyond that. It reaches to anything that is contrary and in opposition to the word and the will of God. There are elements of deception that are active in religious environments. 
that are contrary to God's truth, that appeal to the worshipers and to their experience, but are not directing them to God. Now, on the outside, it may appear that they're being directed to God. They look religious. It sounds good. All the tapestry of so-called man's religion may be present there. But if it is in opposition to the truth, and if it is not the truth, it is in opposition to the truth of God, it's wickedness. It's wickedness. We do not as Christians and are not called to worship God for the sake of our pleasure. We are called to worship God for the sake of who God is. He is the end of our worship, whether we take pleasure in it or not. Now, I know for many in evangelicalism, that's a hard thing for us to understand. God certainly blesses those who worship Him. And we are not denying that. We read in Psalm 63 this morning about the satisfaction of our soul of worshiping God. But in the context of Psalm 63, it's not the satisfaction of the soul that is the end of the worshiper's worship. That's the byproduct of it, but it's not the end. God is the end of true Genuine biblical worship. That's why we are called to worship God regardless of our condition and our experience. If we're happy or sad, if we're sick or well, if we are rich, if we are poor, none of those things are the basis of our worship of God. We worship God and are to worship Him and are to believe Him because He is. Because of God himself. That was the lie that Satan gave to God. He said to God, does Job worship you for nothing? You've put a hedge around Job. You've protected him. You've taken care of all of his needs. You've given him an abundance of things. That's what he meant. And whenever he said, you've put a hedge around him. And it is because you've done all of those things that Job worship you, worships you. We know that wasn't the case. But why is it here in this text so important to see that? Because, beloved, even today we are living in the midst of an evangelical environment where what is called worship is not the worship of God, but the worship of self. That it is the satisfaction of the self that a person is looking for whenever they come to worship God. I hear very little of individuals in some of these great so-called revivals that are maybe taking place today, which I mentioned briefly last week, where an individual comes to that and worships as did Job. Where Job, after having everything stripped from him and his children killed, fell down on his face and said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Very few have I heard, none in this latest event, that claim to worship God. And they are stricken with disease. And they say, shall we receive the good from God and not the bad? Very few, if any. It's all more about, I felt so good after that. It's all about, I am feeling this way. I feel pumped up. I feel like this, or I feel like that. You begin to see who the center of attention is focused on? I feel. My experience, my sense of worship has been satisfied. There are events all through Scripture where you see people worshiping God in great fear. Great fear. You see some worshiping Him in great joy. At the same time, great fear. Look back at our text this morning. The appeal is to the nature of man, the fallen nature itself. The text says, with all deception of wickedness. And as we saw last week, herein is the design of the former signs and wonders to deceive by appealing to the lusts, that is, to unrighteous character of the individual. These individuals that promote this kind of thing are spoken of in Second Peter chapter 2 and in Jude. They are appealing to the natural senses. The Antichrist will appeal to the natural senses of humanity in order to get them to worship Him. Notice the text as it goes on. You'll remember, as we mentioned last week, that Satan is crafty. And in his craftiness, and as a part of the deception, he's mirroring the very things that God did. He, God, gave Christ the power to perform signs and wonders, and he did. God gave the apostles the power to perform signs and wonders. You go back into the Old Testament, you see God doing the same thing with the prophets. He gave them power and signs to perform the miracles that they did in order that the people might look and see that they were delivering the Word of God, that they were communicating God's truth. And the emphasis shifted from the prophet and from the apostles to the written Word. To the written word. Very important for us to acknowledge. Satan mirrors that. Only it doesn't shift from those individuals to the word of God, but stays on those even individuals. The attention's focused on them. How intense will that deception be in the last days? Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 24, 24 through 25. Look there in your Bibles with me. He said, speaking of the last days, the running up to the time that we're looking at here in Revelation or 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
He said in verse 24 of Matthew 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Even the elect. And Jesus said, if possible, even the elect. Now, if you understand the word of God, it is impossible that the elect will be deceived to the point that they will not believe in Jesus Christ. An absolute impossibility. As a matter of fact, we have been going through our study on Wednesday evening looking at John chapter 6, and we have seen there that if at any point in time that doctrine of salvation, which encompasses the doctrine of election, should fail, then all of the nature of God is corrupted because salvation is of the Lord. It's an aspect of His nature that is carrying out and accomplishing the salvation of His people. And if aspects of it fail, then it is the very nature of God that is shown in that to be a failure. We don't have time to go into and break it all out as we have on Wednesday evening, but we must acknowledge that. And so whenever Jesus says here, if possible, that even the elect would be deceived or be misled, what he's saying is the, the deception is going to be incredibly intense in the last days. Extremely intense. So intense is it going to be that individuals will believe the lie. As a matter of fact, take a look with me at the text again. Move down with me to verse 10. Whenever we get into verse 10, we begin to see why and how it is so deceptive and so powerful in individuals' lives. Look at the 10th verse. And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, and notice this, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Look at it again. Look in particular at that phrase, because they did not receive the love of the truth. Look at verse 12. In order that they may be judged, and notice this, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Incredible. Look in that 10th verse again. He's talking about those who perish. In the Greek, it is those who are perishing. They're perishing. And whenever the Bible uses that word perish here in this context, it's not talking about non-existence. 
It's not talking about you're going along in your life one day and you're there in your being and the next day, boom, you're just gone. It's not annihilation that is in view here when it speaks of perish or perishing. The idea of this word is not then that of non-being, but it is the absence that is in view here of well-being. And the picture that's given is the more they reject the truth, the more deception they believe, the more they lose their well-being. It's a picture of what Paul even said prior to this. Here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, as God is removing restraints, and as he pulls back the restraints, that is his common goodness that keeps things afloat for the most part, that keeps things in order, as God pulls those things back, men began to plunge themselves deeper and deeper into their depravity. They began to believe more and more of what is false. They began to reject more and more of what is true. And they are, as they do it, perishing. Perishing. That's what's in view here. And all of it has to do with, and it's centered around, as verse 10 says, because they did not receive the love of the truth. They did not receive the love of the truth. And then as verse 12 says, they did not believe the truth. They did not believe the truth. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, because they did not believe the truth, they have a life of rejection of the truth. The truth to them is something they despise. They don't tolerate it. They don't care for it. They're not committed to it. It's not important to them. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to be uh, encouraged by it. They don't want it in their lives. They ignore it. And on and on down the list we could go. They have a life that is characterized by a rejection of the truth. And at the same time, they have a life that is also characterized by being deceived. If you reject the truth, there is no other alternative. You're deceived. That is just the truth. If you do not hold to God's truth, then what you are holding to is deception. There's no middle ground here. You can't be halfway in the truth and halfway out of it. And if they are living a life of rejection of the truth, if they're living a life of being deceived, they are living a life perishing without the truth. Their well-being is constantly being diminished from. And then... Notice verse 12. In order that they all may be judged. 
Did you see that? If you're living a life of rejection of the truth, if you're living a life where then you are being deceived, and if you're rejecting the truth, you are, you're perishing. You're perishing. And you're not losing again your existence, but the well-being. And the end of that is you will be judged. It is that simple. It is in Scripture that straight forward. Incredible. In the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 36, there is the account, and you can go and look at this in detail later, I would encourage you to do so, of the king of Judah, Jehoiakim. God told Jeremiah to send to Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 36 a message. And he was to do that through Jeremiah's writer, Barak. And Barak was to take the word that Jeremiah gave to him, and he was to write it down, and he was to take that, and he was to read it to the leaders. And he did. And those leaders, as they heard that word from God, read, they feared. The Bible says explicitly, they were afraid. They heard and saw with their ears and their eyes in that word the judgment of God. And they were afraid, and rightly so. And they knew they needed to take this word to the king. So they appointed a time, and the king came in, and he had all of his political people in, and they were all set up. And you know how that all goes today. All of the people, political, come in, and with them is a whole string of other people that are all there. And the king says, speak. So they start reading the word to the king. And right after they start, they don't even get through it, the king stops it. Now the king is in his winter palace, that's the setting there. And he's warming himself by the fire as he's listening to the word of God being read. And he doesn't like it. Because it's talking about God's judgment coming on Judah from the Babylonians. And he rejects it. And then his next move is to call for a knife from one of the scribes, a scribe's knife. And he takes this scroll from which the word of God is being read, upon the which the word of God was written. And he begins to carve it up just a piece at a time. And as he carves it up, he takes the pieces and he throws them into the fire. The Bible says he's not even afraid as he's doing it. Nor are those leaders sitting around him afraid. Even though the one who's read it is warning him, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He just keeps shredding it up until the entire scroll is shredded and cast into the fire.
Well, God calls Jeremiah. And Jeremiah writes down the word again. But he adds to it some information now, and that is your dead body to the king is going to be wasted. You didn't like what came the first time? Oh, the next time it was worse. That's called, by the way, and I'll borrow a term from another aspect of theology, replacement theology. Jehoiakim rejected the Word of God. God replaces the king. Get it? He doesn't tolerate that. God does not take the rejection of His truth lying down. He doesn't take it lightly. To ignore it, to reject it, to deal with it in any other way than what he calls reverence, he doesn't take it lightly. He takes it seriously. Look at these individuals here. They didn't receive the love of the truth. They didn't believe the truth. They lived their lives contrary to the truth. They will be judged. They will be judged. I'm going to call your attention to verse 11. God, the text says, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. As I mentioned last week, this is a very interesting verse, and it's a verse that immediately reminds us, as we've already been in, reminded in this chapter where God removes the restraints, it reminds us again of God's sovereign reign over the events of this last day. And as I mentioned, this particular verse, even though it causes much consternation among those who have difficulty with the sovereignty of God in creation and the sovereignty of God in salvation, it is a verse from which God's people can draw comfort. Because it reminds us that even in the midst of this, God still sovereignly in control. This is not the only place the Bible does that. As a matter of fact, I mentioned to you that Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, a verse we've already referred to, verse 20, um, or Matthew 4, 24, verse 6, he said of those last days, in the same context as the verses that we read earlier, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things, and he said, must take place. The idea of them must take place or having to take place is an appeal to the sovereignty of God. They must take place. Jesus said that he was going into Jerusalem and he must be. And it talked about his crucifixion, his betrayal and his crucifixion. The idea is, in order for God's sovereign plan to take place, these things must take place. And listen, God's sovereign plan, listen closely, it will take place. 
If you've rejected the truth, if you've believed a lie, you will be judged. If that rejection of the truth and the deception that has been instrumental in your rejection of it takes place, judgment's coming. And it is a part of the sovereign plan of God on those individuals. At the same time, God's people can take comfort in it. I referred to Matthew 24, 6 to show and demonstrate that there is, in the midst of this, comfort. Look at Revelation 13, verses 9 through 10. Here is the context of the very fulfillment of what we're looking at in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 13, the rise of the Antichrist is being described. His empowerment by the dragon is being depicted there in that context. And when you come down to verse 9, you come to these statements. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Look at Revelation chapter 22 with me. You see the same thing here. Revelation 22, verse 10. Do not seal, and he said to me, John writes, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. God's not advocating bad behavior here whenever he says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. What is being acknowledged here is that God's sovereign will and plan is being fulfilled. It's taking place. It's taking place. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Talking about the judgment of the wicked, the false teachers. 2 Peter 2.9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to keep them under punishment for the day of judgment. How does he do that? Paul said there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he sends them strong delusion. Now how is he doing that? Obviously he's pulled back restraints and he's allowing Satan to go forward and to influence the people. To empower the false prophet, to empower the Antichrist, and thereby deceive the people. Now, individuals that have difficulty with the sovereignty of God are at this particular point having a lot of consternation, I can assure you. Because they are saying, oh, you're saying God is causing people to be deceived. God is, 
I'm simply saying this, that God works all things after the counsel of his will, that there, including the devil himself, is not acting in the world outside of God's control. No more than the devil acted outside of the control whenever he destroyed Job's life and then afflicted his body. No more. All things that transpire are the result of God's sovereign decree. That doesn't make God evil. It doesn't make God bad. God remains good. God remains just. God remains love. God remains God. Just that. He remains God. Whenever the Bible says they did not receive the love of the truth, the word love that's used there is the word agape. The meaning of the word is that of being committed. These individuals were not committed to God's truth. They're not committed to this. Who are they committed to? They're committed to themselves, to their own pleasures, and whatever will allow them and afford them their pleasures. That's what they're committed to. It doesn't matter if it's religious or non-religious. It's whatever means will provide them the greatest pleasure. With regard to religion and to God, they look at it from the perspective, as Job mentioned, what is in it for them. What is in it for them? But I want to take this morning now, as we close, and look at something else that's very important here. Move down in the text to verse 13. To verse 13. But, and whenever you come to that immediately, you acknowledge Paul is giving a contrast. The contrast becomes evident that it is that between those who have rejected the truth, have not believed it, have not received the love of the truth, and those who do. But notice how God describes them here. But we should always give thanks to God for you. Stop there for a moment. Notice the direction. Paul says, We're going to give thanks to God for you. So what he's about to explain is what has come from God in their lives. He's giving thanks to God, and he's giving thanks to God for them because of what transpires. Notice what transpires here. He says, brethren, beloved by the Lord. They are beloved by the Lord. The word here also is agape. They are those who love, are loved, excuse me, by God. They're loved by God. These are those individuals upon whom in God's sovereignty He has set His love. They are in contrast to those that have formerly been described as those who have rejected the love of the truth. They haven't received it. They haven't believed the truth. 
and they're set for judgment. These are the individuals upon whom God has set his love. Paul makes it clear, beloved by God. Take a look at it. Beloved or loved by the Lord. Notice next. God has chosen you. They are his elect. The word chosen is elect. He's chosen them. His election is upon them. Notice this, from the beginning. And the idea from the beginning in the context of the rest of verses in Scripture, for instance, Ephesians 1, 4, and Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and even Revelation, yes, chapter 13, right there in the midst of that description of the Antichrist receiving power, in verse 8, it speaks of those whose names were written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. These are those who God has chosen. And then notice this. Look at verse 14. It was for this He called you. There is the sovereign or what we refer to as the effectual call. The effectual call. It is in view here. Through the gospel message. They were called through the gospel. That is the means by which God carries out that effectual call. The Holy Spirit brings the gospel message, and a person hears it and believes it by virtue of God's working in their heart and life. Notice as the text goes on, <clears throat> very important to see this. From the beginning, for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is mentioned here in this text is a contrast. These are those that God has chosen. He's called them. He chose them. Well, we should back up. He loved them. He chose them. He called them. He called them for glorification. That is, as the text here says, very clearly in verse 14, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, being conformed to His image. It's clear here. But you remember that this entire message has to do with those in the last days and what we need to do with regard to not being deceived. Look with me to verse 15. So then, so then. I love this. It is almost as if the text is communicating, God is thanked because He has loved you, he has chosen you. He has called you. You will be glorified. Because He's done all of that in your life. So then, brethren, 
Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand fast. The idea here is don't be moved away from God's truth in this context. Because God has done all of these things in your life, He has made you a lover of His truth. If you are a sheep of Christ, then you hear His Word and you follow Him. Paul says, stand firm. Then he says, and hold to. The idea of holding to is taking hold there is what is in view. And he says, of the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. He's using traditions here with reference specifically to the word of God. You can see that there whenever he says, which you were taught, whether you were taught them by word, there preaching and hearing the truth, or by letter from us, the written word. That's what God's people are to do. We are to hold to the written word today. We don't hear the apostles with our audible ear preach the word, or the prophets of the Old Testament preach the word. We read it. We see it with our eyes as it is on the paper in ink. It is the Word of God. And He says to us now that we are to stand firm and we are to hold to it. Otherwise, the only alternative is to reject it. Do you want to not be deceived? Then you must, you must be standing in the truth. You must be. The deception will be too strong. The appeal will be too great. The senses are hard to overcome when you don't have faith as your guiding light. And faith rests on nothing but the written Word of God. Deception will be too prevalent. It will be too strong. It will be too powerful. And we are living in a day and an age today where we are just seeing the surface of it. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. Jeremiah 36, Jehoiakim. 
It's right there in the midst of hearing the Word of God. The ink wasn't even dry on the scroll. That's how close he was to the person who penned it. But if that were not enough, God himself was right there. And what did he do? He didn't fear. He took out a little knife. He carved it up. Pitched it into the fire. Wasn't important to him. Is God's word important to you? Is it important enough to obey it? To obey it? That's God's call on the lives of His people. To love His truth is to be committed to it. First and foremost in our own lives in the form of obedience. Jesus put it this way, if you love me, obey me. Obey me. Do what I say. Do what I say. Not when it's convenient. Not when it's inconvenient. But all the time. Obey Him. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We're grateful to You for Your truth. And dear God in heaven, as we come before You this morning, we pray and we ask that You, with Your Word, would be critical of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. That You would cause us, as those who are called by Your name, to continue in allegiance with Your Word, with Your truth, regardless of the circumstances, calls us in our worship to make you the end of it. Thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the leadership of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.